You're listening to Green Mountain Medicine, an original podcast series by ACP Vermont for all things internal medicine. I'm Sam. And I'm Anish. And we're your hosts. This series aims to unpack the complexity of medicine in a nuanced and evidence-based way. We invite you to relax, grab some coffee, and engage with us as we deconstruct the topics that impact our field and characterize our practice. On today's episode of Green Mountain Medicine, we are joined by David Rand, an assistant professor of medicine, oncology hospitalist, and palliative care physician at UVM Medical Center. We discuss his path to medicine, global health, and how to have a successful goals of care conversation. Will you tell us a little bit about yourself and your training and where you went to school and what your path was leading you to here? I'm happy to. I will say that I hate talking about myself, but I'm happy to sort of run down and maybe I'll give you the more, the more interesting yeah, information later. Just the obligatory um, intro and then we can get into the more fun stuff. So right now I'm an oncology hospitalist at UVM and I've, I've had a, I guess, maybe not a traditional background. I, I feel like many of my colleagues were really superstars when it came to science and I wasn't that way by any means. Um, And actually, my major was emergency health services at UW, George Washington University. Oh, cool. uh, Which was actually a really awesome major. And I I was an EMT in high school. And so that major was basically combining managing emergency medical services systems with becoming a paramedic. And so after college, I moved home to work as a paramedic um, in New Jersey. And very quickly, I, I got injured. And I actually, I herniated a disc in my neck. I remember moved back in July or June and then was having trouble working because I, I was injured in, in August. And um, I was working as a paramedic. I was doing a research job and I, and I, and I actually got fired from my job and they said, I didn't get fired, but they said, you know, you can't do this, do this job anymore. So, cause I just, I was wearing a, a collar on my neck and I had to do something and I started taking uh, post classes. And in truth, I always had desires to be a physician, but I always feared that I wasn't smart enough and I wasn't good enough to get through all those, all those basic science courses. I think that's really awesome of you to share. I think a lot of people feel that way and med schools are now accepting more and more quote unquote, non-traditional applicants. Um, I think it's, it's good to hear about that. Um, thank you. Yeah. So, so I started taking post-bac classes and I got better and I, and I was able to go back to working as a paramedic. And that was a, I must say a really great skill for me to have. I was a paramedic and I, I taught ACLS classes and paramedic classes. And I remember, I remember actually my first rotation was general surgery um, in Philadelphia. And, and again, I was teaching people, I was teaching people ACLS. So I really knew how to run a code really well. And I walked into a code and the resident didn't really know what they were doing. And, um, and they didn't have any supervision either. Cause you know, supervision at UVM is very excellent, but in a lot of places it's not. Mm-hmm. And so I helped them run this code and I, I took out my white coats. They wouldn't know who I was because I, I mean, I didn't, but I was like a medical student running a code in my first like week. Um, and so that was really a cool experience, um, but it gave me a lot of confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I, cause I, I was lacking that confidence in my basic science skills, but I was able to feel, okay, I'm good at this. And so yeah. that really was really helpful for me. And it gave me a huge leg up. You know, I knew how to read EKGs early on and, and you know, start IVs and do lots of things. So, so that, that was, I think, a really meaningful part of my sort of career development. Um, and I worked as a paramedic until I finished med school. But yeah, so I did a post-bac. I did like one of those one-year master's programs. 
And I actually, I didn't really enjoy any of it. It was all basic science and I really struggled. And I decided that I wasn't going to go to med school at all. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I was like, well, you know, I really like teaching. And I, cause I was, I was doing a lot of medical, a lot of education on the paramedic side of things. And so I thought, I'm, I'm just going to be a teacher. I'll teach nursing. I'll be a nursing professor. I like, I like managing. And so I started applying to nursing schools and then I was like, you know what, I'm going to go to med school. So I, I eventually... <laughs> So I, I did at the very last minute in August, decided to go to med school. I went to the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine in 2006 when I started. And I always thought that I would go into emergency medicine because I love being a paramedic. I love teaching EMS topics and, and I still love the ER. Um, and I love taking care of sick patients who are critically ill. And I love the fact that being a paramedic lets you have this one-on-one really intimate connection with someone because it's just it's just you and them like in the back of the ambulance or you're in someone's house and you're sometimes just because they fell or sometimes it's because you're you're doing CPR on them in their living room and you tell their families that they've died in their living room so it's it's really intense and I also though I realized that um, I like continuity a lot and so that was why I realized emergency medicine wasn't quite for me Mm -hmm. that makes sense and I was torn though, because I love pediatrics and I love medicine and in med school, I did a lot of activism and I was interested in health policy and I thought, you know what, I'm going to do a master's degree in public health before I go to residency. because I really want to understand how the healthcare system works in our country. So I decided not to apply to residency immediately. And I went to Yale and did a master's degree in public health and health policy. It was a really hard thing to watch my friends go off to residency and feel like, what did I do to myself? Like, why did I do this? Mm-hmm. I feel like such an idiot. I should have just not gone the traditional route. And yet it was a really great experience. I had a, I had a really unique opportunity to help the Connecticut State Senate write a bill establishing their health insurance exchange. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was amazing to see the legislative process and actually to participate in it and to do research on sort of what other states have done to set up this health insurance exchange and then actually write it and, and then communicate with the lawyers and figure out how to make it legal and uh, then negotiate with, with other folks who had written a bill. And so it was, it was really neat. And then I went to residency and I went to Hahnemann in Philadelphia. Um, Hahnemann is closed. It, it was, you guys, it sounds like you, you're familiar with it. Um, but for anyone who's not, Hahnemann had a long storied history as a very large tertiary hospital, coronary hospital in Philadelphia. And it had many financial difficulties. And so all the residents were fired, the nurses were fired, the physicians were fired. But most importantly, this inner city area of Philadelphia lost it's safety in hospital. Yeah. Um, and that was really a sad, a sad moment. Um, and so I went to Hahnemann for a year and I realized it wasn't my place. You know, I wanted, I wanted to really get good at primary care and it was a hard place to get good at primary care. You know, I, I realize now that the patient population was inc- incredible. It just wasn't well-resourced and I transferred to UVM. And that's how I ended up in Vermont. So I transferred to UVM as an internal medicine resident. Um, and I was in the primary care track and, and the rest is history. It was great. And so as a resident at UVM, I, after I left for residency, I uh, wasn't sure if I wanted to be a PCP or a hospitalist. And so I, I went to work at Porter in Middlebury. Mm-hmm. And that was a very unique experience. Um, you know, we often say this is an outside hospital transfer. Mm-hmm. And we sort of malign this outside hospital. And we imagine the doctors being sort of lesser than we are. And being the outside hospital doctor was a really eye-opening experience. Porter is a 25-bed hospital. has a general surgeon. has an orthopedic surgeon. It has a urologist and an ER doctor, and of course, OB-GYN. Mm-hmm. But from the internal medicine side of things, you're all alone. There's no infectious disease. There's no ICU. Uh, there's no GI. And you really have to be independent. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard. 
there's no backup. There's no residence. And I must say that it, it is a harder job, in my opinion, than working in a tertiary care hospital, just because you can't call a consultant. Or if you do, you call them on the phone and try to ask for advice. But, but you know, we talk about in, in internal medicine, you know, let's go down to the lab and let's look at a smear. But a porter, you have to do that. You have to go down and look at your own smear. Not that there isn't a lab tech, but there, you know, there's no pathologist who's going to look at the smear in the middle of the night. It's you. So, you, you, you know, so it's, it's incredible. It's just an incredible opportunity. And I frankly encourage folks that they have a chance to see what it's like to do a rotation in a place like that or to, or to work um, and, and get your feet wet in a place where you're really, you're it. And likewise, I had a chance to practice a more expanded scope of internal medicine. I did a lot of procedures, mm-hmm. you know, I was putting in central lines a lot. And what's nice when you work in a small place is that change can happen really quickly. Mm-hmm. So in a big place, it takes a long time. But when you're in a small place, it's easy to institute new protocols and to change things. And it was, it was really great to work there. Though I, I miss teaching. I miss the academic piece a lot. Mm-hmm. And so I came back to UVM. How many years were you at Porter? So I was at Porter for full-time for like a year and a half. And I always wanted to work abroad. And so I decided that between, between my time coming to UVM and leaving Porter... I went to Haiti and I went to Haiti for about almost two months. Um, I worked in a hospital called Bernard Mebs, which is in Port-au-Prince. Mm-hmm. And I worked on their general wards and I worked on their ICU and I taught medical students. I worked in a clinic there and it was also really eye-opening. You've done it all. You've done all of the things. We've I mean, all- I, I've, I've had some variety, which is good. So this hospital that I worked at, Hospital Bernard Mebs, was one of the few that had a CAT scanner. Mm-hmm. And because of that, they called themselves the Trauma Hospital of Port-au-Prince. Port-au-Prince is incredibly impoverished. You know, Haiti is the poorest country in this hemisphere. And to describe the, the ER there was lots of beds next to each other, uh, no space. Doctors who are really skilled, really skilled operating a situation with very few resources. People will just die there very, very easily, very fast, just because there are no resources. And it was really sad. I remember very well seeing this patient in clinic. He was 20 years old and he came in with fever, tachycardia, massive, massive ascites, mm-hmm. and a soft tissue infection that was open. And helping was really hard. And, uh, you know, I remember doing a paracentesis, trying to culture his wounds and convincing his family to pay for the labs was really difficult because you have to pay for each individual lab and yeah. these folks don't have any money. And within a day or two, I saw him, I think I tapped his belly again and I saw him leaving the hospital. I said, where are you going? And can speak the language, but through a translator, I learned that he just, they ran out of money and he, so he, he went back to his village. Mm-hmm. I don't know what was wrong with him and I couldn't fix it. Do you think the bigger thing there would be like a lack of preventative health care and like primary care or a lack of that kind of emergent stuff in the ED or a kind of like a combo of both? You know, I think primary care is the backbone of any functioning healthcare system. Mm. So certainly they're, 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 they're lacking providers. Providers who are there are incredible just because of the way that they make do with so little, but just it's, they're, they're just lacking money, unfortunately. And the medical students I worked with there were incredibly motivated and hardworking and were really thrown into roles that certainly we would never throw our medical students into. And they mainly just do a one-year rotating internship and then they get sent out somewhere to to work in in a clinic or something. What's interesting about Port-au-Prince is that Port-au-Prince has a air ambulance service. So it has a helicopter. And um, I had a chance to give a vent talk at the the air ambulance and do a ride along with them. What's so fascinating is you have this air ambulance that's privately funded. It was funded by some of the states and they have all the equipment. Meanwhile, the hospital doesn't have anesthetics. Mm-hmm. And it was an interesting perspective on foreign donations and how 
perhaps it's not always best suited to helping the country that right. it's sent to. So this helicopter service is staffed by, you know, the pilot and mechanic are Americans, the flight paramedic and flight nurse are Americans, and they're always training, they're trying to train, trying to train Haitians. They're spending a million dollars to maintain a helicopter, you know, to maintain two helicopters in a country where that money could go so much further mm-hmm. were it apportioned to public health measures. Right. You have all these patients unable to pay for basic labs and these things. And then you have this really extravagant health expenditure that doesn't seem to add up. Right. The, the, the helicopter's drugs would expire. Like, you know, the, the helicopter sucks in the colon was expired while the ER, I'm sorry, while, while the OR at the hospital was out of sucks in the colon. Right. It was that kind of situation. Did your experience in Haiti, how did that affect what type of a doctor and a teacher you wanted to be when you got back to the States? I learned for one thing that we don't need to do labs as often as we do. So, you know, in Haiti, you you don't do labs at often because you can't afford them. The lab doesn't have capacity, et cetera. And patients do okay. So that was one thing I learned. I wish that I guess every student could come and see what it's like there and to see and to sort of get an international healthcare experience. You know, it's really easy for us to sort of take pity on folks who don't have who are impoverished and, and I think we should have sympathy for them, but also we also need to have so much respect for how they cope. And Haiti, you know, as we see, continues to, to really just face incredible challenges, whether it's, it's environmental, mm-hmm. financial, political, and the people keep going. And it's just, mm-hmm. they're, they are so resilient and it's so inspiring. I don't know how they do it. So what's your opinion on like the very common pre-med thing of like the voluntourism to countries like Haiti or, um, you know, other places in Central South America as someone who's spent, you know, real time working in the clinics there? You know, I struggle with it a little bit. I think I was doing useful things in Haiti. At the same time, do I wonder if, you know, if I had spent the money that I used on airfare to get there and donated it to folks in Haiti, would that have been more useful? I don't know. I, I would like to think that because I was teaching medical students that I was doing useful things and filling a need. So I don't, I, I think it's a really difficult, difficult question. People become better doctors when they have experiences like this. And so I think, I think when you go abroad and you see things, you become a better doctor because you see what we have and what we don't have in the United States. And you also see interesting clinical, interesting clinical scenarios that we don't see her often. So I think that makes you a better doctor. And at the same time, I think it's difficult to justify spending the money to go there and help if you're not making some other kind of donation on your own. So, uh, so I don't have a great answer, but I, I think it's a really morally tricky mm-hmm. subject. What, what, what do you guys think? Well, I, I think there is a difference between working and contributing your skills and teaching medical students, working with Haitians who are also part of the healthcare system. Because I think you're not making about yourself. You're working within a system in the country already. You're not doing that like American thing where you come in and you say, we're doing it my way because I'm an American. Like you're working within a system to hopefully try to do something good. Like before this, I worked in public health and I went to Ghana and mm-hmm. was working in a hospital with a Ghanaian public health like agency. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which I also kind of felt mixed feelings like, is this, am I doing something good? Is it not? I felt a little bit better because it wasn't an American agency. It was Ghanaian people running Mm -hmm. something and Mm -hmm. I got to like benefit by being a part of it. But yeah, there's definitely to Anisha's point, I think people who kind of drop into a country for a while and it's not always medical. Sometimes it's like helping build a structure and then they kind of leave and there's not a lot of follow-up afterwards if Mm -hmm. it was used or maybe like working in an orphanage or in a school or something. And um, that might be a little more morally sticky. 
Yeah, because I, I basically did that like six years ago and mm-hmm. I was a nine more than six years. I was like a sophomore in high school. My guidance coach like, this can be a great way to boost your college application. Like you Classic. can go, we went to um, Venezuela and worked at like a funded clinic for a week. And we'd go there for like four hours a day before being bused back to our like luxury hotel over spring break. And then I came back and wrote like a nice little essay on how it like changed me. And I think honestly, reflecting back on it years later, like I think I learned more of issues with what I did than learned from the actual experience that it was in and of itself, which is kind of ironic now thinking about it years later. But it was like, in hindsight, literally just using the fact that I could say that I went to this country Mm -hmm. to prove to better my applications when like at the time I really like thought I was making a difference there. But in hindsight, like nothing I did helped literally anyone. Besides, I guess, the company who organized this trip. Like, I think it takes a lot of courage to look back and, and say that because mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's hard. It's, and so what would you tell a medical student now or a college student who's pre-med about volunteerism? You know, I think what I would say is like, you really want to take a good minute and think about like, what are you hoping to get out of this? And if your number one thing is to boost your application, then you probably shouldn't do it. If you have you know, another reason, whether it's an interest in public health or global health or understanding the the nuances and how healthcare system works, then that can be great. And it can be a really good way to do that. But also, I think as we've learned in America, there's a lot of places in the United States that have struggling healthcare systems where you can go and learn and work from. Like, you don't have to just go to this other country and try to, like, disrupt it with your Americanized ways. There's plenty of places in the country, in Vermont, where you could go get that like rural healthcare difference, not like a pseudo vacation. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. a really good yeah. point. That's ultimately what tipped me from wanting to do global health medicine to staying here and choosing to go to med- medical school because I just realized mm-hmm. I got my MPH at BU, which is mm-hmm. like a huge safety net hospital. Mm-hmm. BC, and it, I was like, wow, there's a huge you know, lack of resources here with these patients who are right here. And uh, yeah, to Anisha's point, there's a lot to be done in this country too. But um, I think also there's more of a awareness about like voluntourism and stuff. And I think, mm-hmm. I think maybe people are more aware, aware of mm-hmm. the pitfalls of it. And I know UVM medical school has a good global health department and they right. send people for rotations. And I think that they're pretty, they do a good job of integrating into a community and whatnot. So that's great. Yeah, no, I do think UVM does a great job with their global health program. And I think going abroad is really a incredible experience clinically and also just to be to become a better world world citizen. So thinking back to your career trajectory, how did you get into and get interested in palliative care? It's a great question. And I'll say that my interest, I, I did a rotation in, in medical school at North Shore University Hospital, which is now um, Northwell Health in Long mm-hmm. Island and in, in palliative care. And I worked in a palliative care unit and I really enjoyed it. My mom was a chaplain, a hospital chaplain in, I guess, right after she graduated college. And I, I think I grew up hearing stories of sort of taking care of folks who had cancer. And, and this was, I think, long, this was before palliative care was really a thing in the United States. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I always sort of, I was nurtured on her stories of taking care of folks who, who were dying and um, was sort of intrigued by it. And I think the intimacy that you have with patients, which I experienced as a paramedic, you can get a lot of that in all, all types of medicine um, and especially in palliative care. So I think I, I always knew that I might do something of that sort. 
my, my path to palliative care, I think closely mirrored or closely was wound closely with my path to learning about teaching communication. And so when I was a resident at UVM, I had, I had uh, two mentors, or still my mentors, um, Alan Rubin, um, who recently retired. I'm not sure if you guys know him. We do, um, yeah. Yeah, Alan, okay. And Rich Pinkney. And Rick, Rich is uh, one of the directors of the clinic at UVM, mm-hmm. uh, the internal medicine clinic, and teaches a lot of communication, motivational interviewing, et cetera. And they opened my eyes to the fact that being a nice patient is really important. And yet there's, there are more skills you can employ to foster a strong patient physician relationship beyond just being nice. Um, and so I, I realized that yes, I can be nice to patients, but also there's, there, there are techniques you can learn to, mm-hmm. to help patients take better care of themselves. There are technique, techniques you can learn to make patients feel better about themselves, make patients feel better about your interactions and to help patients through really difficult times. And so I had a chance to work with Rich and Alan to learn about motivational interviewing and teaching motivational interviewing. And I had a chance to do that. And then they introduced me to this organization called the Academy of Communication in Healthcare, short, uh, short for ACH. Mm-hmm. Um, and ACH is really a wonderful organization that, that teaches all types of folks, physicians, nurses, social workers, et cetera, to communicate better with patients and to teach people how to teach communication. Mm-hmm. So I became involved in that organization. I took one of their courses on teaching uh, relationship-centered communication, which I can talk about a little bit. And then like at the same time, I was working as an oncology hospitalist and doing a lot of primary palliative care, taking care of folks who came into the hospital and were really sick and facing new diagnoses of cancer or facing, facing death. And, and I was privileged to be able to take a class called Vital Talk. I think actually, I think you all will go through this, this course, all the medical students, which is great. And the course is focused on how do you communicate with folks who are facing really serious medical illness? How do you help them make decisions? And how do you help them deal with a lot of the emotions that are involved in this process? And as with palliative care, a lot of these communication skills involve not telling someone what to do, but understanding what their values are. And based on their values, then using your knowledge and your skills as a physician to make a medical recommendation. Mm-hmm. And so that's really the crux of, I think, a lot of palliative care. So all these communication skills were interesting to me and I began to teach them. And I was supported by UVM with a Frame Warrior Foundation grant to develop a curriculum to teach code status discussions. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so all those sort of led me towards, you know, I'm going to do a palliative care fellowship. And I just did one. I left being a hospitalist a year ago and I moved to New York City with my wife and we, and I uh, was a palliative care fellow at Mount Sinai. And I just returned um, to UVM where I'll be working as a hospitalist and also doing some palliative care on the side as well. Mm-hmm. That's great. An onc hospitalist and palliative care, that seems to go so well together to be able to- It does fit well together. Absolutely. Yeah. I would love to dig a little bit more into talking about the code discussions and the communication, just kind of getting more into any of those pieces that you would be interested in talking about. Great. Great. Yeah. I'd love to talk about that a little bit. Yeah. That'd be great. Something on my mind, which I think, I'd, which I'd love to talk about first is the difference between hospice and palliative care. Mm-hmm. It's a good place to start. Great. And, and, and it's really confusing. And I was confused for a long time too. Palliative care is often also called supportive care, and it means 
meeting people wherever they are in their serious illness and working with them to make sure that whatever medical treatment they're receiving, whether it be neurosurgery, chemotherapy, radiation, whatever it is, that that surgery is in line with their values. And it also means making sure that their symptoms are as controlled as possible. So palliative care clinicians are experts at controlling symptoms that run the gamut. Mm -hmm. from pain to itching to weakness to anorexia, nausea, vomiting, et cetera. And so the way I think about palliative care is it's sort of two-pronged. It's what are your goals and how can I control your symptoms? Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the field. Hospice is a term which generally we use in the United States to refer to folks who are somewhere around six months uh, of life expectancy. And you might wonder, where does this six-month number come from? And it comes from Medicare. Because that is that is sort of the Medicare benefit. And so hospice is a philosophy, but it can also be a place. For some people, hospice care means, you know, you are coming to the end of your life and we're going to focus on keeping you comfortable and not focus on necessarily on life prolonging treatments. Mm-hmm. And for some people, hospice means a place where either a facility where they can go. For example, in Vermont, we have the respite house. Mm-hmm. where they can receive really intensive care. Sometimes that intensive care is provided in a facility because they really need such extensive pain management that needs to be delivered in a medicalized setting. Or they're having symptoms that are so severe, refractory vomiting from a GI source or, or bowel obstruction that they really need to be in a facility or cancer is eroding into their coronary, into their carotid artery and they're at risk of having sort of a rupture and they just can't be taken care of at home. Other people end up in a facility like that because for whatever reason, they can't be at home. Not, not, not sure their symptoms are so di- difficult, but their family just can't support them. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's more and more common. People have to, some people have to work. They have to make a living. Some people, you know, and when folks are at the end of their lives, they need 24 hour care oftentimes. Right. So hospice may be a facility. Um, it may be home hospice, which means, you know, having a hospice nurse come checking on you, come checking on you once a week, having a number to call to say, my loved one is having shortness of breath. What should I do? And being able to receive advice. Right. And I think the take-home point is that palliative care can be provided at any point in someone's illness. You don't need to wait till someone is on death's doorstep to provide palliative care because it, it is supportive care. Right. I think that's the probably number one thing. It seems to me that people don't know about it. Maybe lay people who aren't in medicine, but I even think a lot of people in healthcare kind of have. Mm-hmm hospice and palliative care kind of confused and overlapped. And, you know, I think that sometimes people mention palliative care and doctors are like, oh no, you don't need that yet because you're not anywhere close to six months left in your prognosis. And so it kind of gets pushed on the road until it's almost not too late, but not as early as it could have been where it would have been most beneficial. Exactly. And I think a lot of times as physicians, we're not just afraid of calling in palliative care because we we worry it will shorten patients' life, but we also worry sometimes that the patients will have difficulty dealing with the term palliative care because mm-hmm. um, they'll think it means that we think they're dying. And so it's important to sort of to discuss with patients what palliative care is. Some patients, some hospitals, for example, Sloan Kettering, Sloan Kettering calls palliative care supportive care because mm-hmm. it avoids that label. You know, I often tell patients, you know, we want to bring you an extra layer of support. And that can mean emotional support, physical support. And that comes in the form of a team of doctors and nurses and social workers and chaplains who deliver care. And that's called palliative care. It doesn't mean that we're going to stop trying to help you live as long as you possibly can. It just means we want to give you some extra support. 
I like that way of phrasing it. I think language is so important with these delicate issues and supportive care and an extra layer of support feels a lot easier to conceptualize um, and still feel supported if you do want to keep getting treated for your cancer or whatever else it is that you can have kind of all of the things and then maybe get yourself towards a better way of thinking about what's important to you without the pressure or without the fear that people are giving up on you. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and language is really important. And I think inadvertently, you know, sometimes when we struggle with patients, it's because we haven't figured out exactly how to use right language with them, or sometimes how to make them feel heard and and understood. You know, something to talk about is with regard to code status. So I'm curious, so you guys are 30 years. So what's been your experience so far with seeing code status discussions? If if you would, do you feel comfortable talking about it? And it's okay if you don't. Absolutely. I think that, you know, my experience has been, at least in my outpatient rotations, it's always been like, it's it's a conversation topic, especially at like a Medicare annual wellness visit, because it's kind of part of the visit. But it never seems like it's the biggest priority, I guess. It's kind of like, oh, you know, here's, let's talk about what you might want to do. Should you, you should fill out like a, you know, advanced directives type mm-hmm. of thing. Here's the paperwork. Next time you come back or whenever, just drop it off. Like it's, it's very, it's always mentioned, but never seems to be emphasized to a significant mm-hmm. point. I think the only pl- the only time in my med school where we really talked with them a lot was I did neurology already. Mm-hmm. And like on especially the stroke team, a lot of these people are looking at significant disability after their stroke. Mm-hmm. And you know, we mm-hmm. talk about also, especially you know, when they were being discharged, like some kind of like subacute rehab or something, really talking to them then about kind of what they would want. And I also think that, you know, even then it wasn't super clearly explained to people. And just, you know, like, what does it mean if I'm DNR versus if I still want this life-saving measure, but not that, or like, how long would I want to be on a ventilator for like all these conversations that I feel like a lot of the time we maybe kind of just give all this information to people and just say, kind of pick what you want without maybe having the space or the time to really process like all of what that might mean. I had a similar outpatient experience as niche, and then I've done internal Uh, medicine inpatient. And I found that it was kind of resident dependent, which I found interesting because I worked with some residents who they would say like, go get the code status, like just go get it really quick. And you would, Mm -hmm. you know, they'd want us to ask like, your heart stopped, should we restart it? Do you want blood? Do you know the like Mm -hmm. rapid fire three questions and then get back here in five minutes. And then I worked with other residents who really, I think, enjoyed having the conversations and would sit down with the patients and give recommendations as well as explain things, which was much more thorough. And I think all of the residents were so caring with their patients, but I think it was very dependent on what they were interested in. And maybe they hadn't had full training of like why it's so important to have mm-hmm. these more in-depth discussions. So I, I thought that was really interesting. Great. And so, yeah. And so, uh, so clearly that points to a need. If, if, if our practices are so inconsistent, we, we have work to do. And a lot of us weren't taught how to have these discussions. And so it can be hard to know exactly what to do. And so maybe I can give some tips. Would, would that be okay? That would yeah. be excellent. When, when you start thinking about code status, there are a couple of things that are, are helpful to know. And one piece is that most patients don't understand that if their heart were to stop beating, they're unlikely to survive. Mm-hmm. Studies looking at the general public's perception of CPR indicate that most of them think that you get CPR, you get shocked like on TV, mm-hmm. and you wake up. And unfortunately, as we all know, that's not the case. 
What we also know is that there are certain patients who are more likely to have a worse outcome than others. In general, what we know is that folks who have a, a cardiac arrest in the hospital, right? And that's the ideal place. You're in the hospital, there's people around, there's defibrillators around. But folks who have a cardiac arrest in the hospital, about 75% will die before discharge. Of the, and then of the ones who survive to discharge, about 5% will have severe disability, 21% will have some disability, and maybe 15% have no clinically significant disability. So unfortunately, as of right now, CPR is a treatment that for most people is unhelpful. You might ask yourself, CPR is the default. How did it become the default? Um, and just be, I mean, and CPR saves people's lives without a doubt. Um, so I'm not saying I'm not saying it doesn't, but it became the default after some pioneers in surgery and critical care at Johns Hopkins published a case study in 1960 where they took folks who were anesthetized and had a cardiac arrest on the table and did closed car- cardiac massage. And this was a, a subset of 20 patients and they had a really great outcome. So 70% of those folks survived with good neurologic function. The problem with the study that has been subsequently extrapolated very widely is that these are folks who were on the table in the operating room already presumably intubated. And that's not the usual folks who have a cardiac arrest. Right. And so it's really important when you think about who needs a code status discussion, you think about folks who really are unlikely to survive a cardiac arrest. And so I'm curious. So, you know, again, I know you guys are our third year, so there's a lot that you are learning and seeing now, but if you were to guess, what sorts of patients do you think are less likely to survive a cardiac arrest or the least likely to survive a cardiac arrest? Someone with an underlying cardiac disease. Say more about that. Someone whose heart, for whatever reason, is already working hard, whether that be like chronic uncontrolled hypertension or general ischemia of the heart, they had like angina or something like that. Okay. Okay. I'm going to give you the list, but I want to give you guys a chance to think about it. Sam, what do you think? I would say not just heart conditions probably, but other underlying chronic conditions. Well, so you you guys are on the right track in that you're both thinking about what state is someone in before they have a cardiac arrest. So folks who have a poor functional status at baseline are much less likely to do well. So folks who have dementia or who live in nursing home. And what I often tell people when I'm having this discussion with them is I say, if this were to happen to you or your relative, you wouldn't be able to get to the place you are right now. But so, so poor functional status to begin with, folks who have cirrhosis, folks who are on oxygen for COPD and say adrenal disease, advanced cancer or hematologic malignancies, and folks who have stage three or four heart failure. Hmm. So if you think about who you should talk, talk to about code status, it's those folks because those are the folks who are least likely to do well. And I think that's relevant because when, you, when, you're, when you're a busy clinician, it's important to triage. And you don't need to have a code status talk with everyone, even on admission. But the, but the folks, if you're going to prioritize people, those are the folks you should talk about, talk, talk with. And so some of this is about language and some of this is about values. So there are some language tricks that you can use uh, to help people understand more about cardiac arrest. And tricks is probably the wrong word, but what we say really does matter. So do not resuscitate is very different from saying, do not attempt resuscitation or allow natural death because do not resuscitate suggests that we can flip a light switch and Mm -hmm. say, do you want me to fix this or don't you? 
But we know that we have so little control over who survives a cardiac arrest because most people will not, unfortunately. So saying do not attempt resuscitation paints this idea in a much more accurate light. Hmm. I like that. So using that word is more helpful, but also saying allow natural death is also helpful. You know, we, we know that doing CPR and intubating someone is definitely far from natural death. What's also important is making patients feel like they're not being abandoned. You know, sometimes when, when you say to people, I recommend that we don't do this treatment for you. They think that you're saying, well, I don't, I don't want to help you anymore. I don't want to care for you. And so it's really important to reassure people that we will care for them, that we will take care of them no matter what. We will work to get them home no matter what. We just recommend that if their heart were to stop beating, we allow them to die naturally and peacefully. So if someone who has one of these conditions you mentioned says that they want everything done for them, how often do you as a clinician revisit that and see if their ideas have changed? It's a great question. So, so I would say that when someone says they want everything, it's super important to ask them what that means to them mm-hmm. to, to begin with. And again, and assess their values before you even get there. So tell, tell me about your life. Tell me what gives your life meaning. What things do you like to do at home? Can you imagine a situation where your life wouldn't be worthwhile living to you anymore? Those are really important questions because sometimes people will actually answer it for you and they will say, well, you know, they say, well, it's really important for me to garden and spend time with my grandkids. And you can say, well, listen, the chances are that if your heart were to stop beating, you wouldn't be able to do those things. That's your end to say, if this is how you feel, we recommend that we don't do these things for you. But to specifically answer your question, which is a really good one, which is how often do you readdress decisions that patients make that are highly emotional and can easily lead them to feel that you're trying to convince them one way or another, or make them feel, or feel like they're lacking autonomy. And the reason why your question is so astute is because oftentimes we make the mistake of seeing people in the hospital who we know are really sick. We know we're doing things that we feel we shouldn't be doing. And we hit them over the head with this, with these discussions. And we ask them every day, you sure you want this? You sure you want this? And I remember I made that mistake as a resident with a patient in the ICU. Uh, the patient was on pressers. They were, we knew they were never going to come off pressers. And I kept bringing it up to them. And that was really detrimental. And so there may not be a time and place, or, or sorry, there, there may not be a clear answer of how often do you reintroduce the topic. The clear signposts are if their clinical condition changes. Some people want to die in the hospital. You know, some people want to die with every single treatment, even if we know it's not going to be helpful. And in the United States, we honor that. But if their, if their clinical condition changes, that's the time to bring it up again. Or there are ways to bring it up and saying, you know, I'm really worried about you because of X, Y, and Z. And by introducing those topics more sensitively, sometimes we can, we can bring it up sooner than we would if we just sort of bring it up in a, a careless way. A good rule of thumb whenever you're talking about something sensitive like this is to ask permission. Mm. Asking permission tells you several things. It tells you, is the patient in an emotional space to talk about this? And it's okay if they're not. And if they're not, you know, you want to bring it up a different time. And it also lets the patient buy into the topic. As we all know, when people ask you something and you have, you have a choice in the matter, you are much more likely to be engaged mm-hmm. and not feel like a topic is being forced upon you. And that's a general rule in all, all types of medical communication. I've heard some doctors say that in there's some countries where patients don't individually decide what their code status is, but instead doctors who are the holders of the clinical knowledge and kind of the more full picture of the patient's health, maybe uh, they're the ones who decide who to do CPR on and whatnot. I know in this country, we're so individualistic. I, I mm-hmm. can't imagine that ever coming p- to pass here where people's 
freedoms to choose everything isn't respected. But mm-hmm. what what do you think about that? So it's a great, it's a really interesting question. Uh, so two weeks ago, I was teaching this course, which we discussed earlier, called Vital Talk, right? Which is a national course about dealing with folks of serious illness. And this particular course I was teaching was actually geared towards physicians in Scandinavia. And we spoke with physicians who were in Sweden, Norway, I believe. And in this course, we have standardized patients and we have setups and we have scenarios. And so the scenarios were things like the 90 year old patient living in nursing home with dementia is in the ICU and her family wants everything done, quote unquote. And these physicians said, we would never do that in our countries. That would never happen. A 90 year old woman with dementia who didn't know her name would never end up in the ICU on a ventilator. That, that just wouldn't happen. So, um, and I also add something interesting. So working in, in New York city for the year was interesting because they approach what might be called medical futility differently. In our hospital, if someone wants to go to the ICU and they're sick enough to to go to the ICU, they go there. At Mount Sinai, there's a policy that if the physicians believe that the patient will not benefit from an ICU level of care because they are, again, so ill, they will say this patient should not be moved to the ICU. Interesting. And And they remain on the floor. And do you think, you know, all of the current COVID surges we're seeing where ICUs, especially in the South, are filling up or forcing, you know, Americans to have these talks about medical resources that we don't normally have to have? I think those conversations probably are happening more. The, the difficult thing is the more overburdened a healthcare system is, the more overburdened its providers are and the more difficult it is to take the time to actually have these meaningful discussions. And that's why everyone knowing how to, how to provide some basic level of palliative care or some basic level of having these discussions are, are really important. I, I, I read a tweet recently, which I think is worth repeating, which is all medical students spend time learning how to deliver babies. And a lot of us will never do that ever again. Though in Haiti, I did deliver a baby. <laughs> However, we all, or almost all of us, will have patients who are facing the end of their lives. And we don't spend nearly as much time learning about that and how to do that well. That was definitely worth the verbal retweet. And we're lucky at UVM that it does seem to be more of a priority. Yes, absolutely. You know, UVM, I think, really does a great job with that. What do you think the hardest part is for you now that you've been a physician for a long time and you have all of this palliative care training? What What is still the hardest part of your job, do you think, in communicating difficult news or having these hard discussions with patients? That's a good question. So I, so I don't exactly know what the hardest thing is. What I will say is something I learned being a palliative care fellow is that so physicians and all types of healthcare providers often experience significant existential distress when their patients want treatment that we feel like is not going to be helpful to them. We, we can struggle with that. And what I learned wearing the palliative care hat, as opposed to the, I want to cure you hat was that sometimes it's okay. And sometimes patients are not going to want what we want. And the best thing to do, obviously, is to talk to them, but but also to understand that their wishes are important. And people sometimes come to decisions in their own time. And we have to give them their own time. And sometimes their own time means a trial of ICU care. Sometimes it means that they need to be on a ventilator for a few days. You know, none of us have a, um, a magic eight ball. And so we don't always know what, how things are going to turn out. And if people want trial of clinical care, sometimes it's our job to provide it. I have one interesting question that, so we took some ethics, you know, classes back in our first two years. And one of the classes we had was on physician assisted death and kind of the role and values, but also concerns associated with that. 
And I was wondering if you had any opinions basically on it from your time and maybe if those opinions changed at all after your palliative care fellowship you did. That's interesting. I will say that I think in Vermont, we're, we're lucky that the people have, have an option. I think that we're lucky in Vermont that we can, if we are really suffering, that there is a, is a way out. There's also, I think, a risk to these types of policies in that misinterpreted or widely promulgated, there's a risk that people will decide to end their lives early instead of focusing on getting really good supportive care. Mm-hmm. There are ways to help people sometimes that we may not get to because people jump to the chance to end their lives early. Mm. I think I'm, I'm glad for me personally, I'm glad we have this law in place. And also we need to recognize that we have to be really, really careful. We have covered so much good ground. Is there anything else you want to talk about or make sure that you emphasize? I would love to give you a brief framework about code status discussions and just a, free, a few key phrases. Would that be okay? Yeah, that would be perfect. Okay. So there are four steps that I think are important when you have a code status discussion. The first piece is to ask about prior conversations. You may learn that the patient has already thought about this and they already have a plan and they, and they, and they know what they want. The next piece is to talk about what is going on with them. You can't understand someone's goals or what interventions you should be doing until you understand that they know what their diagnosis and prognosis are. And then once you do that, it's really important to ask people about their goals. Because again, our job is not to tell people what they should get. Our job is to hear what their goals are and then make a medical recommendation. Some people think that our job is to provide a menu. We could do CPR. We could not do CPR. We could give you a breathing tube. We cannot give you a breathing tube. But that's not what we're supposed to do. We're, we're supposed to hear what patients' goals are and then, and then make a medical recommendation. And um, so those are your steps. Ask about prior conversations. Discuss diagnosis and prognosis elicit goals, and reframe the patient's values into a medical recommendation. Those are really helpful. And I think they're palatable for the med student level as well, because we're third years and we're, you know, this is our first real foray into clinical medicine and we're learning so, so much. And I think sometimes these conversations might feel like, oh, we're out of our depth to start thinking about them. But Mm. even if we could do a, a piece of these four steps. Good. Okay, so one more thing, which is, if you'd like, I can give you one phrase for each of those four things. Yes, please. Okay, asking about prior conversations. A sample phrase is, have you discussed with your doctor or your family your preferences if you were to become critically ill? Or have you made decisions about the use of life-sustaining treatments with regard to discussing the patient's prior diagnosis and prognosis? We just talked about what brought you in today, but tell me how your health has been overall and where you see things going down the road. Or since I'm just meeting you for the first time, I'd like to get a sense of your health in the big picture. How's everything going? Mm -hmm. These questions really give you a sense of where people are and what they know about their illness. And sometimes they'll they'll really know what's happening and sometimes they won't. And that's important to know. Mm -hmm. When you're asking people about goals, their goals and values, there's a couple different sort of ways to ask, but essentially you're asking what is core to the patient's well-being. You can say things like, tell me about the things that in your life that are most important to you or what gives your life meaning. Another thing to say is most people have things they feel make life worth living, like playing with grandkids, working at their career, reading a favorite book. What are those things for you? 
Or is there a situation where you would feel life is not worth living? And then when it comes to making a recommendation, you could say something like this. We are going to do our very best to take care of you and get you home. But if you were to get very sick and your heart were to stop beating, which means you would die, I recommend that you allow that we allow you to die naturally and peacefully. If we tried to restart your heart with CPR, I don't think it'll get you home. I don't think it'll get you to feel even as well as you do today. And of course, before you make a recommendation, you have to ask, ask permission. You could say something like, so it sounds like being at home and spending time with your family is most important to you. May I make a recommendation? When we hear you break it down like this, it feels a lot more manageable. Thinking about talking to someone about dying and death, it's such a huge thing. It's like how to even begin, but each of these steps is kind of an easy foothold into understanding more about them and kind of guiding the next part of the discussions. Yeah, I also feel like all of med school, like all of like getting into med school, I want to make people better and I want to like cure things and stuff. And so that's like kind of how you're trained to think about med school is like a pre-med. And it takes like a little bit of adjustment to realize these conversations are also super important to making a patient better. And even though you may not be curing their disease, you're giving them the support and the care and the understanding they need to make peace within themselves. Absolutely. Guys, thank you. It was really nice nice um, chatting with you. You guys are really good listeners. I feel like I just talked for a long time. It was really wonderful. That's it for today on Green Mountain Medicine. I'm Anish Single. And I'm Sam Schutz. And thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed our discussion, please don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ACP underscore Vermont for more podcast updates.